This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, Register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 511 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. 
Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. Their civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts, I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 511 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 511 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 374 of Behind the Shield Podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Sean Wyman. So Sean is one of those guests that has a very powerful story overcoming pretty significant childhood trauma to then ultimately becoming a very successful law enforcement veteran. So we discuss a host of topics from trauma-informed care to some of the tensions we're seeing between law enforcement and members of community and a host of other areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I truly love reading the feedback that you leave and then leave a rating. Each five-star rating really does elevate this podcast, making it more visible for other people to find it. And this is a free library for you, the audience, whether individually, organizationally. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredibly powerful stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Sean Wyman. Enjoy. Sean, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Hey, thank you so much, James. I'm so excited to be here, man. Brilliant. Yeah, we had a few technical gremlins. They are uh, out now, so we are good to go. Um, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I am in Tallahassee, Florida. Beautiful. So I'd love to start at the very beginning. Um, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and, and how many siblings. Okay. So I was born in uh, Clearwater, Florida, uh, a place called Morton Plant Hospital, uh, I was, uh, I had my mom who was, uh, named Janice, my, uh, my dad who left basically, basically my dad left the day I was born. Um, him and my mom didn't come to an agreement on, uh, putting me up for adoption that day at the hospital. He wanted her to give me up and she chose not to. So, um, I ended up, you know, with my mom and my dad left. As far as siblings, uh, I have stepbrothers and stuff, and kind of as we go along, I can kind of integrate that in a little bit more, but no um, no blood family at all. All right. So I know that there are obviously some pretty significant chapters in your early life. So lead me through the first seven years. Okay. Well, the first seven years were the best years of my life as a kid. Honestly, man, my mom was uh, a single mom. She was going to school to go to nursing school. Um, we spent some time with my uh, my grandparents, her parents, and they used to babysit me while my mom was going to school. There came a, a time where they actually tried to take me away from my mom, and uh, my mom went and fought for me and ended up losing her parents because of it. After that, we moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, again, living with my mom. She was uh, now a nurse and working full-time. 
And it was, uh, you know, I didn't know any better. I felt like it was a good life. My mom was there and uh, I was going to school and everything was good for the first seven years. What took you to Albuquerque? Well, what took me to Albuquerque was uh, just, I think it was a job opportunity for my mom. And I think she had some friends, uh, you know, relationships, the people that she could lean on, especially after uh, she went through the challenges with uh, my, uh, my grandparents. Right. So then that transition to Albuquerque, uh, you said the, the first seven were, you know, were amazing. What started to change? Well, what started to change was when she decided that she wanted to uh, move to Washington, D.C. She had met this guy um, who sold her the fairy tale dream, and she was so excited, man. She had gone over to D.C. with this guy for um, a week or two, and I'll never forget, man. She came back, and she was so excited, and she was telling me how we were going to have this amazing life, and we were going to move to Washington, D.C., and and everything was going to be great. So that's what we did. We packed up all our stuff. We hopped in the car, and we drove three days from Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Washington, D.C. And what were, what were the early weeks like with this new man in, in your life? Very, very questionable. And I say that because when we got there, you know, he had said that he was a very successful business guy and he had a home and all this stuff. But when we got there, we were living with different people. Um, Some were family members, some were friends. And we were just kind of going in and out of different people's houses and kind of kind of, you know, trying to figure out what we were going to do and and where we were going to live. It was a really weird time because. You know, he was telling her one thing, but, you know, now that I look back, we were seeing something completely different than what he was talking about. Yeah. So with your mom being a nurse, obviously, she's, you know, an intelligent woman. In looking back now, do you know, have you asked her or are you able to figure out how he was able to dupe her from such a, you know, a disparity between fiction and truth? You know, I think he was a really good storyteller. And I, I think he he knew um, he knew how to take advantage of her. And once he got her, he knew how to keep her. And he used fear and intimidation and manipulation. Um, I mean, he was a he was a, an expert at it. So let's talk about DC then. So what changed, and you know, kind of lead us down that road to, you know, the 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 incredibly powerful incident that then shifted your life as a young man. So once, you know, when we first got there, like I said, we were kind of moving around house to house, going back and forth. He kept making excuses. Um, My mom, you know, found a job pretty quickly in the nursing industry. So she started going back to work and making money. And you got to remember when my mom got there, she she had great credit. She um, was well established. She had good credibility. And, you know, as we as he and her, you know, grew in their relationship. He took all of that away from her. He basically stripped all that away from her very slowly. My stepfather was a drug dealer and, um, you know, he sold drugs, but he also did drugs. And looking back now, I realized that, you know, my stepfather was a drug user because he suffered from um, mental illness. Um, He suffered from uh, physical pain from uh, accidents and different things that he'd gone through. And uh, he was addicted to drugs and alcohol. And it, it, it turned his life upside down. And he basically pulled us into it. Along with that led to a lot of anger, a lot of hate, a lot of rage. 
And he took that out both on my mom and on me. Um, you know, my mom was mentally and physically abused for over 30 years. Myself, I was abused for three years um, from about the age of seven until I was 10. He did a really good job of, and this is the one thing that I'll always remember was a positive, was that he taught me how to survive. He taught me, you know, how to how to live under the, the most horrific circumstances. We, we, we had a house that he borrowed or he, I, I don't know if he rented it or if somebody loaned it to him or I really don't even know how he ended up in his house, but it had no running water, no electricity. It was in a very low income suburb area called Sea Pleasant, Maryland in Washington, DC. And I was the minority in this neighborhood. My mom was the minority in this neighborhood. And then us as a family, we were the minority because you had a a white woman with a black man and a white son. And it just caused a lot of, of issues, especially back then, because it was almost unheard of to have these interracial relationships like what they were doing. So I was not only getting beat up in my house, I was also getting beat up out of my house when I was going to school. And I was like one of the only few white kids in my school and, you know, walking home every day, getting in fights. And then, of course, getting home and getting in fights with my stepfather, uh, you know, getting mentally and physically abused, having to ride around with him until the middle of the night while he was selling drugs and then have to go to school the next day. So at the age of 10, it came to a breaking point. We all come to a breaking point sooner or later. Some of us, you know, we become depressed and suicidal. But in my case, I became very homicidal. And, you know, this is something that I'm not proud of, but it's definitely something that was part of my journey. And I remember that the, the night that it happened, I had a, uh, a school play and I had ran the play had ran late and my stepfather was furious because he was behind schedule for things that he needed to do. So I'll never forget. I get I get in the truck with him and he's just livid. He's angry. And I knew. Right. You know, as you become abused, you become conditioned to prepare yourself for what's coming. So I knew that I was going to be beat that night. I, I knew it was coming and I was already mentally and, and as crazy as it sounds, physically preparing myself for that moment. So as soon as we got home, um, the truck door opens, we get to the front door and it starts. He slams me into the front door and he just starts punching the daylights out of me. And you got to realize that I was maybe 100 pounds, maybe soaking wet. And uh, my stepfather was a solid, solid 225, 250, you know, six foot two, six foot three, solid guy. And, you know, he just started beating me. And then the door opened and he threw me inside and he beat me some more. And then it was just whatever he picked up, he just started hitting me with and throwing me against walls and slamming me on the floor and, and just going through it until finally the lights went out. And I remember everything went pitch black and I didn't remember anything else. I don't know what happened after that because I just totally blacked out. And I remember I woke up the next morning. My my mom is is kneeling next to me and she's crying her eyes out. And my stepfather has got his hand on her shoulder and he's looking over her shoulder and he's looking at me and she's telling him, she's like, what did you do? How could you do this? And he's telling her how sorry he is and please forgive her and or forgive him and, and just the whole sob story. And that was the moment that I got so angry because I just wanted to reach up and hug my mom and let her know that everything was going to be okay. And when I couldn't, 
that's when that that homicidal moment happened because I became so angry that he had beaten me to that point where I couldn't even reach up and comfort my mom, who I was very protective of, that I I decided I was going to kill him, James. That's the best way I can explain it. And the way I was going to do it was he had a gun that he carried with him everywhere he went. It was a, a small little handgun that he kept in his back left pocket. He bragged about it all the time. He talked about how he would shoot police officers if they tried to pull him over, talked about how he would shoot other drug dealers if they tried to rip him off. And he showed it to me all the time. And he actually threatened to shoot me and my mother with it many times. So I knew he had this gun. Um, and I knew where he kept it. So my plan was when I could move again, I was going to pack my bags, get all my stuff together. I was going to walk in and I was going to shoot him and I was going to leave. That was my plan. So the night comes when I'm going to do this. I had my stuff packed. It's by the front door. I walk into the bedroom. My mom is on the right side. He's on the left side. I walk around to the left side of the bed. I, I take the gun out of his, uh, his back left jeans pocket where it always is. I walk around to the foot of the bed. I look at my mom. I look at my stepfather. I punch the gun out, and I start to slowly pull the trigger. And what I can only call a divine intervention, James, was that I, for whatever reason, the gun didn't go bang. And in that last moment, I took my finger off the trigger. I put the gun down between my mom and my stepfather, and I grabbed my backpack, and I ran out of the house, and... I, I ran away. And this was the third time that I'd ran away from home at this point. So I ran away for three days. The police found me. And then they called my mom. They said, hey, great news. We found your son. We're bringing him home. And my mom said, no, he can never, ever, ever come back here again. And that was a pivotal moment because that was the moment that I, I felt like my mom had abandoned me. And it really uh, changed my life for a long, long time. Well, I heard you tell this story on another podcast. And firstly, thank you. Cause I mean, every time someone recalls trauma like this, I know, I know it takes a toll, a little piece of you to tell it. So thank you for, you know, for being so courageous for recalling that. And obviously there's a lot more that we need to talk about, but 10 years old, you know, watching you getting beaten. And I have a, tw a 13 year old son. So I can think about how small he was when he was 10 and, and the fact of, you know, someone much bigger than me laying into him. Um, when when you've spoken to her now, what was her thought process of not allowing you back? You know, for a long time, we didn't talk about it because she was so sucked into him and so entrapped by everything that, you know, I mean, it took years before I could even come to grips with everything. And that's, you know, that's to tell a little bit later. But I would say once we did reconnect, the one thing I'd never thought about was her side of it and what it must have been like for her that morning. I don't even know who woke up first that morning, James. I don't know if he woke up in the middle of the night and saw the gun. I don't know if she woke up in the middle of the night or if they both woke up at the same time and looked. I have no idea. And I can't imagine what that moment was like waking up and seeing the gun in between us. So I realize now that when my mom basically said he could never come back. It was to save my life because she knew that my stepfather would kill me if I if I came back to that house. Yeah, and you mentioned that he had threatened basically to do that before. Yeah, he did many times. He I mean, 
just, you know, it was just, and it was all a very psychological thing, man. It was all about, you know, one day your mom's going to come home and find you buried in the backyard. One day you're going to be helping me bury your mom. I mean, it was some, some crazy things that, that no child should go through. No, no, no woman should have to go through that experience. No, absolutely not. Well, just one more thing kind of on that whole dynamic. So we know of the, the grip of terror that, you know, some partners have on the other person. Did she ever kind of hint as to why she didn't leave him and take you away? I honestly believe, and there's this there's this thing that happens as domestic violence continues and gets longer and longer, there becomes this weird disconnect where you actually start to see and believe that what you're experiencing is love. And in her heart, she loved him. And in her in her being, in her believing, she believed he loved her too. And he felt, and she always felt that there was an opportunity for him to change, that there was an opportunity for him to, to find a way out. And my mom, that was the one thing about her was she was a very um, strong-willed, but very determined. And when she believed something, she wouldn't let it go. And I believe that that was part of it was not being able to let that go because she did love him and she believed that he was capable of changing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, just so heartbreaking to hear that because you, you, you see that lens that we see so often with these domestic abuse, you know, victims. And then, you know, obviously we see, and I've had on the show many person, it's ironic how, how many people in our professions, associated professions are drawn to this because of their childhood trauma. So you you then found yourself in the foster system, is that right? I did. I ended up uh, in the care of the state of Maryland from that point forward. So walk me through that, the the highs and the lows. Well, the the highs were I got away from my stepfather and I stopped getting beat. The lows were that I kept going from foster. Well, I went from group home to group home and foster home to foster home and, you know, going to different schools and, and meeting different people and never really settling down and having any balance in my life. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of boundaries. I didn't have a lot of discipline. I didn't have a lot of uh, structure, if you will. And, and no one had ever helped me to deal with all the pain of, you know, the, the pain that, you know, at the time I felt like my mom had given me the, the anger that I had towards my stepfather. You know, I'd never gotten rid of those feelings, even though I didn't pull the trigger, the feelings and the emotions were still there. And, uh, you know, going through the, the different aspects of the of foster care and group homes and different things, um, you saw a lot of different people. Um, some were into drugs and alcohol and, and, you know, I was able to immediately recognize it because of my environment that I'd been in. Um, but I met some really good people and there was, uh, you know, when I was about 15, 16 years old, I finally found a, uh, a home where I could stay for the rest of my, my time as a teenager. And, uh, you know, I finally got, you know, into high school where I didn't have to move again and I was able to kind of stabilize, but, I didn't really have like a father figure. My, my foster mom kind of played a dual role. My, my, my foster father, he's, I mean, he was a good person at heart, but he really wasn't kid friendly, if that makes sense. Like he really wasn't like um, into like um, raising children. And so again, I really didn't have a lot of structure and boundaries. So 
at the age of 12, I, I, I found alcohol and alcohol became a coping mechanism for me. And I realize that now back then, you know, I just thought it was a cool thing to do. And but the reason why it was so cool was it helped me to get rid of my pain and it helped me to be who I wanted to be. Somebody who was brave and confident, could talk to anybody and, and that kind of thing. So alcohol really became my vice. I, I started smoking at 12 as well. But um, and I experimented a little tiny bit with drugs, but that really wasn't my thing, man. Alcohol was my thing, and it was really easy for me to acquire. And um, so I drank until I was 27, 28 years old on a uh, on a regular basis, to say the least. It's amazing, and obviously I want to expand on that more because that's definitely a coping mechanism that that we use a lot in our professions to this day. Um, so in that kind of high school age, though. Did you find yourself doing well in school? Were you an athlete? Were you, you know, uh, drawn to certain elements of the academic side? No, no. I, I was really drawn towards survival. Um, I know that I turned, I, I, I went from being bullied to becoming the bully. And uh, I got in a lot of fights. Uh, again, I was channeling a lot of anger. You know, what I did find was work. And I look back at that now. And I remember I got my very first job when I was about 12. And I remember that from that point forward, I have always had a job. I have always worked for the things I wanted because I was always told by you know my foster parents, the different ones, that they weren't going to buy me clothes. They weren't going to buy me nice shoes that, you know, they were going to, you know, buy the the. Uh, you know, like the the hand-me-downs and stuff like that. And if I wanted those things, that I had to acquire those things myself. So that was one valuable lesson. Um, I became a workaholic, and when I wasn't at school, I was I was at work. I was I was working different jobs, and that was all the way through um, until I graduated high school. Now, as far as the academics, man, I barely made it through high school. Um, but by the grace of God, I did graduate. And um, and athletics, I, I had no idea that I even had athleticism. It was never really something that was uh, challenged or brought out of me. I did play baseball like when I was like six years old, and uh, but it never went anywhere. Amazing. All right. Well, then what about your career aspirations when you were in high school? What were you hoping that you would be able to do one day? That's a great question because I went through a lot of challenges in these uh, different areas going you know, growing up. I was arrested a few times. I did some really stupid things. Um, and police officers actually became a big influence in my life, um, a positive influence. Even when I did the most stupidest things, they were encouraging. Um, there was a guy that lived like down the street from me that was a retired canine handler at one of the houses or one of the homes that I lived at. And he would allow me to come over there and wash the dogs and feed the dogs. And these were all like retired police dogs that he would take care of. And he would tell me stories about being in canine and stuff like that. And I always thought those were really cool. And the other thing I saw that was great about police officers is I knew I wanted to do something that would ensure that I would never fall back to my past. I never wanted to be poor. I never wanted to ever live in a house with no running water, no electricity. I didn't want to be a child abuser. I didn't want to be a, uh, um, a spouse abuser. And, and I was scared to death that that would happen if I didn't choose the right path. And so law enforcement was the direction that I saw that was most likely to take me as far away from my past 
to help me to, to move forward with my future. Yeah, that's a beautiful moment because, I mean, we, you and I both know that phrase, hurt people, hurt people. And I think there's another caveat to that. Hurt people, hurt people, unless they don't. And you and I work amongst so many people. And I know this now, and I didn't get to realize this until I really I started this podcast and started truly listening to other you know, men and women from around the world. But yeah, some people say the buck stops here. I don't want to be unfaithful to my wife. I saw what happened to my, you know, my family, or like you said, beat my child or whatever it is. And I think those men and women are really drawn to the military and law enforcement and fire and the other protector professions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I know for me, law enforcement was a big influence because like by the time I was 15, I knew that's the direction I wanted to go. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I knew that was the direction I wanted to go. Right. Well, walk me through that because I know it didn't go as smoothly as you hoped. No, <laughs> no, no. And I have to laugh now, man, because it's like, it, you know, it, as I told this story over and over again, I began to realize the um, the oxymoron of this basically. Right. And so um, when I turned 18, when I graduated high school, and I, you got to realize that when I went into foster care, I decided I was going to forget everything that had ever happened to me and pretend like it never happened. That was my idea of, of dealing with this because I didn't have counselors and social workers and therapists and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, knocking at the door and, and, and in the foster care system, it just wasn't even a thing back then. So I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to pretend like it never happened. And I'm just going to go live my life and everything's going to be fine. And as long as nobody finds out the skeleton in my closet, I'll be good. And that was my thought process. So I turn 18 and my childlike mind, my child, my child mind at that point, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I was really happy in Albuquerque. So if I go back to Albuquerque, I'll be happy again. So I when I graduated high school, within I'd say a week or two, I moved back to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I found out that the Albuquerque Police Department had this program for law enforcement called police service aides. So I went in there, I applied, I got hired, and I became a police service aide for the Albuquerque Police Department. And it was really like a, uh, a training slash mentorship program to develop to uh, see if you really want to be a cop one day. So it was a cool experience because I did it for about a year and a half, really, yeah, almost two years. And... Just, you know, I'm, I'm working with police officers. I'm doing things that police officers do. I'm, I'm sitting at dinner tables and talking to them and learning from them. And I'm, I'm really feeling like this is the direction that I want to go. So when I was old enough, I applied to become an Albuquerque police officer. And, you know, I went through the whole process. I already had kind of an in because I was uh, in the police service aid program. I knew all the officers. I had met the training officers and worked with some of those guys. So I felt very confident that I was going to get an opportunity to get this position. So I applied, went through the whole process, did really well all the way through the process. My mistake was, though, is that instead of being confident, I became cocky and and. You know, there's a fine line between confidence and cocky, and I learned that the hard way. I got to that last time where you're supposed to, you know, walk into the room and the whole board is sitting there and they tell you whether you got the job or not. And so we're at the end and I'm so confident. I just know that I got this in the bag and I walk in. There's this whole panel of, uh, you know, police officer administrators in front of me. 
And you know, this one guy, he's like, hey, look, man, you did do a really good job. But I got to be honest with you. After we had our discussion, we felt you were too young and too immature. And we feel like you need more time before you, you know, before you go through the academy. So we want you to come back next year. And you would think, right, James, I'd be like, hey, man, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate this opportunity, uh, you know, but I, I did the exact opposite, man. I looked at him and I was like, you just made the biggest beep of your life. And I storm out the door and I realize now what I did was I proved them right. They read me on the money. I was absolutely too immature for that job. And I'm thankful today that they didn't give it to me at that time because God only knows what would have happened to me or where I would have ended up. So I storm out the door. I'm angry. I get in my car. I drive off. And sure enough, man, I'm driving on my way back to where I live. And I look over to the left and there's this sign and it says Army Recruiting Station. And I pull in to this Army Recruiting Station Three hours later, I'm enlisted and uh, getting ready to go to basic training in September of 1992. That'll teach him. That's right. <laughs> so, but that was, then, you know, again, such a, like you said, divine in intervention or, you know, the universe speaking, whatever the umbrella term people want to look at that. It was one of those one door closes, another one opens moments. And I know you've talked, you know, use that metaphor in other conversations too, but it's something I talk about. You, you have this epic nightmare this absolute cluster in your face and you're like well my whole life is ruined and then you know something else manifests and then you look back a few years later and go ah i get it now and i even had the same with the fire service i was told i was colorblind in england i couldn't be a fireman it took me well, years to figure it out but i don't think 18 year old james would have been a good fireman to be honest i really don't right, right. so so tell me about your experience in the army then Oh, man, the Army was amazing. I, I found my father figure in the Army. I really did, man. I found discipline. I found purpose. I found direction. And I found motivation. That's where I discovered I had athleticism. That's where I discovered I had strength. That's where I discovered I had mental toughness. And the, the Army really helped me to mature and to become a man. Because, And I'll be honest with you, without the Army, I don't know where I would be today. And, you know, I, I learned so much in such a small amount of time about um, survival and, um, you know, channeling my anger. And what the best part about the Army was that I it fed right into my storyline because I could be angry in the Army. They wanted me to be angry. They actually championed me to be angry and to be a warrior and, uh, and to channel all that anger and use it, you know, for the right purpose. And so I did. And they also encouraged my drinking. I was able to drink there and nobody said a word about it. As long as I showed up and did my PT and did what I was supposed to do, there was no problems. There was, you know, there was no uh, no worries. So, you know, and the other great thing about the Army was I also got to go to a school called Ranger School. And it's, you know, it's one of the most elite schools that the Army has to offer and again, at that time, man, I was like 120 pounds soaking wet. A lot of people thought this was something I could never do, that I would never be capable of because there are people a lot bigger than me, a lot stronger, a lot tougher that had given up and quit this school. And the, the odds were against me. They were not in my favor. And I learned how to take those odds that weren't in my favor and, and prove people wrong. And even though I almost died in ranger school while I was going through it during a training incident towards the end, at the end of that, I came out a very strong, 
confident and mature human being who was ready to take on anything after that. And still to this day, there is nothing in my there's nothing that I feel like I can't face, no matter how bad or how horrific I can I can face it. And the the army and uh, ranger school really helped me to do that. And what was the near miss that you had? So the near miss that I had was that I just crossed over a, uh, a river doing a rope bridge crossing. And I had about 100, 110 pounds on my back on my rucksack. I was carrying a bunch of ammo because I was the, the ammo bearer for the 60 gunner that night for our patrol. So I was carrying a ton of ammo. And then something happened to the 60 gunner and I had to carry the M60. So now I'm carrying the ammo and the machine gun. And if, you know, I don't remember the exact weight. I want to say it was like 26 pounds, just the gun itself. So I got a hundred something pounds on my back. I got the, the M60 machine gun on my front and I'm walking and I trip and I fall and I slam down on the ground and the rucksack slams down on the back of my neck and basically pinches a nerve in the back of my neck, which paralyzes me from the neck down. And so I can't move at all. I'm totally freaking out. The RIs are screaming at the top of their lungs because they think I'm giving up and wanting to quit and, and all this stuff. And, you know, it wasn't until they actually realized that I was really hurt. And then, you know, they started getting help and they brought a helicopter in. But the helicopter couldn't land because we were in a woodland environment in uh, Eglin over at uh, Eglin Air Force Base. And they were trying to figure out how they were going to get me up into the helicopter because they needed to get me to the hospital. So they decide they're going to bring this litter down. And I don't know if you remember, but back then they had those old school litters. They had two lines. They had a guideline and an anchor line. And they kind of like counter, they countered off of each other. So, you know, they kind of balanced out the, um, the litter, if you will. So they put me in this litter. They connect the lines and I start to go up. And I'm, I don't know, I'm maybe 10 feet off the ground, give or take. And all of a sudden I hear shing. And then the, the litter itself just starts rotating in circles. And it gets faster and faster and faster and faster until it's going as fast as the helicopter rotors are going. And I'm feeling myself sliding out from underneath the belts that are supposed to hold me into the litter. And I'm gripping on to the litter with everything. I mean, I'm just holding on for dear life. And every once in a while, this thing would slow down and you would feel it inch up and then it would start spinning again. So with the gravitational force, um, the, you know, the centrifugal force and then, you know, the blood basically rushed from my head to my or I'm sorry, from my feet to my head. I blew every blood vessel in my face. I had blood come out of my eyes, my ears, my nose, my mouth. I mean, everywhere that blood could come out of, blood was coming out of. And I'll never forget that it took them 15 minutes to get me into the helicopter. And it's only, again, divine intervention that the pilot, who I still have no idea who this person is. I don't even know if it was a male, a female. I have no idea. But this person saved my life that night. I know that. And... I remember them, you know, the the guy that got me in, he, he's like, if you can hear me, squeeze my hand. And I know I reached up and I, I tried to squeeze his hand and then I blacked out. I passed out. And a couple hours later, I wake up. I'm in the hospital at Eglin Air Force Base and these nurses are laughing and making fun of me because I smell so bad because I'd been out in the woods for so long. And they're trying to cut my gear off and my my, my clothes and everything so they can try to figure out what's wrong with me. So um, long story short, 
I'm in the hospital for two days. I begged them to let me back out because I didn't know if I was going to graduate. And I refused to go back without my tab because my sergeant major had made it very clear. I only come back one or two ways. I'm either dead or I come back with a tab. And I wasn't dead. And that's what I told him. I said, look, I've got to get back out there. So the third day I signed a waiver um, and I got back out there. I finished ranger school and I ended up graduating with my class, which was an extreme honor. I am so glad I asked that, that question. It's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. And then, you know, what's funny as well is uh, I'm sure a lot of the firefighters listening, there was a video that went viral probably, I don't know if it was even six months ago. Um, and it was a climber, I think, that got hurt. And the same thing happened. I don't know what happened with the guidelines, but they started spinning and uh, they got the fairground ride of their life. So I know exactly what you're talking about. That must have been horrendous. It was scary, man. Definitely a scary moment in my life. Yeah. But I mean, again, so so what I'm sure a lot of people are thinking now is the, the incredible resilience, albeit with a huge cost, that you had from going through what you did as a, you know, as an elementary school kid, um, you know, definitely factored into, you know, your, your mental toughness now, because a lot of people would have tapped out if they were bleeding out there, you know, every orifice, but to, to sign a waiver to go back out there because you understood the value of that Ranger tab is, is pretty phenomenal. Thank you. So with, with that as well, I just want to touch on one more thing. So up to that point, before you entered the military, especially, you know, the Rangers, um, you hadn't really had a tribe, you know, you'd been bouncing from your real family to your foster parents and, you know, not really feeling like you, you belonged at school. Did you, did you realize, did you have a moment where you're like, I'm actually part of something now and, and, and kind of recognize some sort of healing element to that? You know, now that you say that, I can definitely see how that that was possible. I will say I did have one friend uh, that was like my best friend. He's still uh, considered one of my best friends today, and we catch up every once in a while. Um, but even him, man, he was very athletic and, uh, you know, just uh, just, you know, an amazing human being, to say the least. But he kind of helped me. And he never knew all of those things. He didn't find out until later on as I got much, much older and began to tell my story. He had no idea about the different challenges and the different things that I'd gone through before I'd ever met him when I was 12. So, um, but you're right, man. When you, when I got there into the military, um, especially after graduating ranger school, there was an elite status that I got because at that point, even though I was still a PFC, uh, private first class, when I got back to my unit, I was not messed with anymore. Sergeants, you know, looked up to me. Uh, you know, I mean, there was a, a very high respect that came with that tab and, and, a, and, a, and an appreciation for, you know, somebody to go through all of that. And when I got back, my eyes were bloodshot red. Um, I was 110 pounds. Like I looked like an alien, man, a pure alien. Um, I'll never forget the, the afternoon I got back and there's this young private there and he's looking at me and he's like, what the hell happened to you? And I'm like looking at him all tough. I'm like, ranger school, man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and I walk in and I, and I like go to my, I go to my rack and I sleep for like three days. Right. But I'll never forget, man, how, how empowering that was. And like I said, I made rank very quickly after that. I went from a uh, private first class to a sergeant within a year, and I made staff sergeant within the second year after that. So in less than three years, I was a staff sergeant, which was almost unheard of. 
But again, being in an infantry unit, going through a leadership development course like that, um, it really uh, it helped me to uh, to to really find myself and, ident- and my identity of what I was capable of. Um, and, and even recognize that I can be pushed off the cliff and I can still find my way back up. And that was a very empowering moment for me. Absolutely. Well, so leave me what made you transition out of the military and then your journey into law enforcement on the civilian side? So I, I went to uh, to Vincenza, Italy for three years. I, re, I re-enlisted to go to Italy. Um, but my first four years at the end of my tour, I went to Egypt. And right before I went to Egypt, I met this girl. And because I had gone through this experience where I lost my life, I was really thinking about that. And I was like, man, if I would have died, I wouldn't have had anything to leave behind. No legacy, no name. And so, of course, the next woman I meet basically um, becomes the one. And so we talked back and forth while I was in Egypt. And then when I got back, before I left to go to Italy, we got married and um, we ended up moving to Italy together. And unfortunately, I only got to see her like you know, six months out of three years because of all the different um, things that I was doing over there. So it just long story short, you know, the relationship didn't work out, but she ended up pregnant towards the end um, when I was getting towards the end of my enlistment of my second year. And when um, when she was getting ready to have the baby, she decided she didn't want to have our son in Italy. She wanted to have our son in the United States. So she went back to the States we found out that my son had this uh, medical issue with his kidney called hydronephrosis, where one kidney was filling up and doing what it was supposed to, but the other one wasn't. And so they had to do, they were worried they're going to have to do surgery as soon as he was born and a lot of complications. So I got a hardship tour to come back. And when I came back and I saw my son born, I had to make a really difficult decision because I was coming right to the end of my enlistment. I really wanted to stay in the military. I was really enjoying what I was doing. And I was my goal was to actually become a police officer through the military. I wanted to go through their criminal uh, investigation division program and, and become a CID investigator um, and, and stay in the military the rest of my career as a, as a cop, basically. But because that didn't work out, I had to make a decision. Was I going to be a father or was I going to be a soldier? And all it took was a little bit of reflection and a reminder of what my dad did to me. And I swore I would never be any of those. I would never play any of those parts that were played against me. So I decided that I was going to be a father. And that's what led me to start putting in applications for different law enforcement organizations. I knew I had a lot more training, a lot more experience, a lot more understanding. And I felt very confident I could land a job. So while I was going through that process, a buddy of mine at Fort Rucker had a friend at the Tallahassee Police Department. He introduced me to him. The guy had me fill out the application. They had me go through the process. And uh, in, in late 1999, I got hired. And uh, I started the academy in early 2000. And the rest is history. I've been in law enforcement for the last 25 years now. I'm sorry, not 25 years. The last uh, 20, almost 21 years now. Beautiful. Well, what was it like then entering the profession, coming from your background in the Army, especially having gone through Ranger School, um, when it comes to the the physical testing and then also the mental health side? 
Well, the, the mental health side, like I said, taking the psychological exam, all that stuff was really easy. It, it wasn't it wasn't difficult. The, the physical stuff wasn't difficult. The academy wasn't difficult. Um, even the um, going through the classes and taking the tests, it wasn't di- difficult. And I think part of that was because I really wanted to be a cop, man. I had all I'd never given up on my dream to go into law enforcement. And so when that opportunity came, I, I was all in, man. I wanted to be a police officer. Now, what about the uh, the alcohol? You mentioned that up to 27 is when you stopped drinking. So was that kind of around the same time you started in law enforcement or did you have a a moment that, you know, initiated you stopping? So, and again, another great question because I was drinking like most of us, right? We go out at night and we drink and, you know, do whatever and then show up at the academy the next day and do what we had to do. So I was still drinking on a, on a regular basis. Um, I drank until I was about 28 years old before I finally, and that was about a year on the job before I was like, you know what? I, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to lose my job. I'm, I realized I was going to get to that point. But I need to go back for a second to the academy because I remember in the academy, one of the instructors there talking about mental health and it, and not in a not in a cool training like way, but like in a kind of a braggadocious way, talking about how, you know, we as police officers, we have a very high divorce rate. Um, you know, uh, women will will come after you and, and try to take the badge, you know, and, um, you know, have a high divorce rate. We have a high um, addiction rate. We have a high alcoholism rate. We have a high uh, suicide rate. But they never said why. They never said how it happens. They never got into any of that. They just laid out these stats and said, even some of you will end up being arrested and thrown in jail before this is all said and done. And in my class of 30 something uh, people, there were people that got arrested. There were people that um, their coping mechanisms became drugs and alcohol. There were people that um, have been divorced and and gone through uh, different challenging marital situations and relationship situations. And uh, and I look back at that and I'm like, man, that's pretty crazy, man. We knew then and we're still saying the exact same thing now, but it doesn't seem like a whole lot has changed. So imagine, if you will, this 27 year old, you know, new police officer. And when you're at your worst, you want the best to show up. And when I was showing up at people's front doors, I was drinking all the time. I was recently divorced. I was a single father to a brand new baby boy. I was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt. I had gone through multiple adverse childhood experiences, which I had never dealt with, never mind the fact that I had premeditated the murder of my stepfather and never dealt with those feelings. So when you were at your worst, James, that's what was showing up at your front door. And what I began to discover as I went through my healing process was that I got into this profession because I really wanted to help people. And because I wasn't my best when I got into this profession, the people that I wanted to help, a lot of those I ended up hurting unintentionally because I was getting triggered by what they were doing. And I was also triggering them by the way I was treating them. And so that was a really powerful thing later down the road when I had that that recognition. But the aha moment, the thing that flipped the switch was, again, divine intervention. I met a woman who I fell in love with over time. 
And when I when we were getting to that point where we wanted to get married, I went to a uh, a retreat um, and I, you know, I wanted to be my best when I got married this time. I wanted to do things the right way. And I wanted this to be my only marriage. I did not want to go through divorce again. And I wanted to make sure I was doing everything I possibly could. So I went to this retreat with, uh, you know, with open eyes and an open heart. And I went through the process and I'll never forget. I'm sitting in this dark chapel. I had just gone through a, uh, um, a thing. It's like a kind of like a confession where you just, you know, you talk about things that you'd gone through and, um, things that, um, that you're not proud of, if you will, with a priest. And I remember I'm sitting in the chapel and I'm reflecting on the things that I had this conversation about and I'm going through my Bible and I come across this scripture in Colossians and it talks about forgiveness. And it says, you know, in order to be forgiven, so you shall, or so you must also forgive basically. And and it didn't say that you should forgive. It said you shall forgive. And I never forget the impact that it had on me. And it was in that moment that I it was almost like I heard God speaking to me and saying, look, there's so much I want to do with you. But until you go back and you address your past and you forgive all that needs to be forgiven, I can't do anything with you. And it was in that moment that I recognized that I was I was making mistakes that were going to hold me back for the rest of my life if I didn't go back and deal with my past. So when I came out of that retreat, I came out a totally different human being with a recognition of I had to find a way to forgive my mom. I had to find a way to forgive my stepfather. And most importantly, I had to find a way to forgive myself for containing all this information in my head and trying to store it all and hold it and hide it. I had to find a way to go and, and forgive all of that. And so that's that, that was that turning point. That was that aha moment. That's when things began to go a different direction for me, James. Well, just before that, because I mean, I really want to explore, you know, the, the, the post-traumatic growth now, the positive side, but right before, because it's very pertinent with some of the things that we're seeing, you know, with, with, um, the, you know, the people that have, that have, have died because of mistakes from police officers. And, you know, the George Floyd is a, is a great example when you look at the, just, just the, the cumulative, um, errors that resulted in his death, regardless of medical conditions, all those other things, including the, you know, the EMS crew that showed up. Um, talk to me about before that moment, what these interactions were like. I mean, what we, what was it like when you ran on, for example, domestic dispute or, or an addict in the angry, you know, early career version of Sean? What, what were your responses like back then? Oh, man, this is an embarrassing time because I was so ignorant to the fact that what these people were dealing with and, and that these were coping mechanisms and that all these people had gone through their own cycles of trauma. So not knowing that, I basically followed my training. My training was basically if somebody tries to speak over you, you speak over them. You're in charge. You're in control. When you're, you know, when you're dealing with people, you take control. So when someone would raise their voice at me, I would raise my voice back. You know, um, it was very easy to um, negotiate. I shouldn't say no negotiate. I would say to start conflict and to um, to turn things that could be very simple into very complicated issues. Um, I know dealing with uh, domestic violence, I could relate with the abuser and I had no sympathy for the abuser at all. And I had no sympathy for the woman that was being beat because my my thing was, 
get the hell out. What are you stupid? You know, I mean, that was the that was the mindset, right? Suicidal people. I hated dealing with suicidal people because my thought thought process was if you're really going to kill yourself, just kill yourself. Quit, quit, you know, quit, quit messing around. You're not serious. If you were serious, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Right. And I, I was very cold hearted about those things because I just felt that they were stupid things that, that, you know, if you want to get, why don't you just get away from this person? Or, you know, if you really want to kill yourself, you know, why, why are we even having this conversation? Why are we dealing with this? Um, you know, if you're drunk or you're an alcoholic, that's, you know, quit, you know, um, and I was not reflecting and looking at myself, even though I was being triggered by every single one of these incidents. And when I got triggered, I would trigger them as well. And I didn't recognize it at the time because I didn't know any better. Yeah, well, exactly. So, so again, this journey that you've taken right now in this polarizing you know, uh, environment that we are being sold by news agencies, social media, you know, that kind of thing of the very few, the very loud, getting all the fucking airtime at the moment. You're standing there, Sean, in your tactical gear, in your uniform, whatever it is, and you're a policeman. And you don't understand what it's like to be person X. And the reality is, you probably have more trauma than 99% of the people that are crying about how much trauma they've got. And they are justified to have their trauma too. But by separating and dividing and labeling, you know, we're, we're, like you said, there's no solution. Oh, you just have these problems in your profession. Yeah, but where's the fucking answer? That's what we need to be told. So one thing that I, it, it just, it kills me when I think about it now, but just like you, when I entered the fire service and I had four hirings, I, I bounced around from East Coast to West Coast. That was four psych evals. That was, I think, three polygraphs. Both completely ridiculous, as you know. You know, you fill in the bubbles, you know, you answer the ridiculous questions where they slide in questions to try and catch you. You lie your way through a polygraph because none of us would have jobs if we were completely honest on a polygraph. Let's, let's be honest. Um, and then you go and you start day one as, you know, a young man with all that trauma built up. And then you're let out into the streets and you see the very people that, you know, were the, the cause of your pain in whatever shape or form they are. So one of the things that I think that we should look at in our professions, associated professions, is take that money from the polygraph and the psyche valves, use the same budget that you've already allocated, and put these men and women through some counseling sessions while they're in the academy, while they're in the orientation. So you have a chance to offload the trauma. You have a go-to person now. You can create post-traumatic growth so you don't get the burnt-out, you know, triggered police officer that then does something horrendous in that split second and now, you know, someone ends up hurt or killed. And I agree. I, I would take it one step further. I think that it starts with training to help them to understand that if they have gone through some form of trauma or some form of adverse childhood experience as they were growing up and they never dealt with that, that that will affect them on the job. So teaching them ACEs, and trauma-informed care, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, curriculum, to help them to understand uh, from a trauma-informed care policing philosophy to recognize that you're going to go to events, there's, um, you know, there's going to be um, effects, and there's going to be experiences, right? And you can't control the events you go to. You really can't control the experiences, but... If you understand what you're getting into and you understand 
um, the, the experience that you just went through, then you can have some control over the effects and how those effects affect you as you go on throughout your career. But I think it all starts with training at the very beginning, James, because uh, even if you tried to counsel them, a lot of them wouldn't open up, you know, I mean, in a counseling session, not just one, right? It'd be one thing if there were like multiple counseling sessions, but if you had a class and, and that's kind of why we created going beyond the call, because we wanted to create a training platform where we could help them to understand that the people that you're going to interact with, a large majority of them are the 67% of the population that score a four or higher on the ACE test or the adverse childhood experience test um, that, that really, um, you know, focuses on a large majority of the people that you're going to interact with. And so if you recognize that going into your profession, then you can have a better idea of how to interact and how to deal with those people as you interact with them. And instead of seeing people in a moment of, you know, what's wrong with them, we actually start to think about what happened to them that led them to that moment. And as we train them in that, they have to self-reflect on themselves and look at their own issues that they went through as they were growing up and the challenges that they faced. And then that's where they get that aha moment. And then we open that door up, James, and we say, hey, look, you know, this is what I scored on the ACE test, right? I scored very high on the ACE test. Um, you know, and then I share some of my stories. I open myself up and I become a little vulnerable and tell, you know, some of my story and what, why, you know, how it affected me getting started on the job. And, you know, instead of telling them that there's high suicide rates and divorce rates and addiction rates and all these things, we go, yeah, all these things can happen, but here's how you recognize it before it happens. And here's how you address it. And here's the different types of trauma. And this is what uh, post-traumatic stress injuries are. And this is what post-traumatic stress disorder is. And post-traumatic stress disorder isn't a permanent disorder. There's actually growth and healing that can come from it if you meet it the right way. And we actually educate them and teach them so that they can be better for themselves as well as bridge the gap and have a real understanding about the communities they're getting ready to go out and interact with. I absolutely love that. And no, with the counseling, I'm not talking about a single one either. So imagine alongside that training, you're doing multiple. I mean, how many times are you doing push-ups in an academy? Yeah. You know what I mean? You're how right. many times as a fireman are you climbing stairs with hose on your shoulder? Why should the mind be any different? And then, and like you said, whether it's trauma when creating post-traumatic growth or whether it's just mindset, overcoming fear, over, you know, breathing control. I mean, there's so many other areas that you can make, you know, a better tactical responder. Absolutely. I agree 100%, man. Right. Well, then as a side note, because I mean, I, I like to put this in anytime someone's really got a boots on the ground view of um, this particular thing I'm about to talk about, I, I really like to try and draw their, their knowledge out. So, you have a horrendous experience with um, addiction when you're young, not, not personally initially, but through the violence of an addict, then you find addiction yourself. One thing that I have been very fortunate enough to be exposed to, have my eyes open to, is A, as a firefighter paramedic, seeing the behind the curtain, the, the reality of addiction and mental health as, as a responder, seeing fellow firefighters die from overdosing. Um, I had the honor of sitting down in Portugal with a gentleman, Jao Gulau, who spearheaded decriminalization of drug use in Portugal, of addiction. Not, not smuggling, not selling, but addiction. 
And instead of going to prison, they got siphoned through addiction programs, mental health counseling, job creation, all these things, um, and literally reversed their their epidemic in less than a decade. Switzerland's done the full legalization, but the whole point is put the, the medicine back in the medical community's hands and not the drug dealers and the criminals. With that being said, and with this aha moment that you had, what is your view on the on the ripple effect of drug prohibition? And do you think that decriminalization would be of benefit rather than the system that we have at the moment locking addicts away? You know, I'll be honest with you. I've never, well, one, I've never been posed this question before. So I'm going to, I'm going to answer it from my heart. And I'm going to say that there's a lot of people that use drugs, not because they like drugs, but because it it's a coping mechanism. And, you know, if, if you could do something like that where you could teach them again about ACEs and about how and, and help them to dig deep into where the root of the drug use comes from and help them to identify that. And more importantly, adjust, help them to adjust and find positive coping mechanisms to counter the negative ones then yeah, I would be all for it. I think that it would be great that it would be a, a way to uh, to enhance change, to uh, be able to enable people, empower people to uh, find their true self again and, uh, and, and help to provide hope. Absolutely. I think the other ripple effect would be it would be safer for the police officers. You know, the whole point is to create you know, a, a safe environment in the community. And, and what breaks my heart is there are countries around the world, there's, there's some that are far more dangerous, don't get me wrong, but there are some that are, they don't have police officers murdered every day. You know, they don't have civilians murdered every day. So, you know, that through my eyes is definitely one of the factors that would resolve some of the issues that we're seeing at the moment that people are protesting about. And, you know, and it's it's us versus them. And you've got to ask yourself, well, is it or is it the system that, that we're all in? Is that the thing that we should be looking at? Right. Right. Well, then, so how as a police officer did did you change? You know, you went from the angry, disgruntled, um, intolerant officer of your very early career, as you mentioned. Explain to me how your policing changed as, as a human being. So when I married my uh, my first wife or I'm sorry, my second wife, and um, she got pregnant with our first child together, um, and remember, I was still a single father. I was dealing with visitation and child support and all those things as well. So as my uh, my wife got pregnant, um, she told me that she wanted to stay home and she didn't want to go back to work. because She felt like, you know, God wanted her to stay home and raise our children. And that, that was something she really wanted to do. So I had to start exploring different income options besides law enforcement, because, as you know, you know, being a, uh, a single income with a law enforcement or any first responder job when you're entry level isn't just really isn't a reasonable thing for most organizations. So I had to start trying to figure out. And through that, I started, you know, coming up with different things. And one of the things was online marketing and uh, learning online marketing strategies and things like that. And that led me into radio and I had my own radio show where um, I started um, interviewing people and talking to people. And the whole idea was to talk about their success and how they had used online marketing and this and that. But every single one of them ended up being this beautiful, um, uh, scriptural or spiritually based stories. 
And I was I was really empowered by that, and I thought it was really cool. And and I kept interviewing these very successful people. And this one woman I interviewed, her name was Loretta. And Loretta told her story. We did our interview, and afterwards she talked to me a little bit, and I opened up and I shared my story with her, at least part of it. And she said, "You need to write a book." And I was kind of laughing. I was like, "Yeah, right, whatever, you know." And she's like, "No, seriously, you need to write a book." And she gave me a deadline. She basically said. I want you to write a book. I want it in my hands, in at least a manuscript in my hands in like the next 30 to 45 days. I'm going to be in this place at this time. I want you to have a book for me. And I, you know, I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, I, I didn't take it serious at the time. But after I got done talking to her, you know, I, I prayed about it and I got in front of my computer and I remember I pulled up the Word doc and I started typing just the general stuff. I just started at the beginning, kind of like what we did tonight, talking about where I was born and what happened. And before you knew it, I was I was just in I was entranced in my story. And I'm I'm typing and every night I'm getting home, I'm having dinner with my wife, and then I'm going in the bedroom, I'm locking the door and I start hammering out. And in 30 days I had a book written out. And I had it um I had it done, published on Amazon as a bestseller in 45 days. And it was, and it, the crazy part was I never even got to meet the woman that I was supposed to put the book in um, her hands because she ended up having to cancel. And so I, I mailed it to her and she read it and she thought it was incredible. But that's what started was this book because that book began to open doors for speaking engagements. And through those speaking engagements, I started to meet people that taught me about trauma-informed care in the social services industry. And that opened my eyes up to what it could do in law enforcement. But then I was trying to figure out, I was like, okay, what would the problem be that trauma-informed care would fix? And then I wasn't really versed on the suicide rates and all of that, like how serious it really was. And I started going back and digging and doing my research. And that's when I discovered that we killed, we were killing ourselves. We still are actually killing ourselves more than anything else we train for that could kill us. And, you know, for the last 18 years, I've been a high liability instructor. I've been a trainer in defensive tactics and firearms. And so um, it's very near and dear to my heart, high liability issues and how important they are and they, how needed they are. But I got really frustrated when I recognized that we're killing ourselves more than any of these other things that we're training for that could kill us. And I began to ask myself, why is this happening? Why is this not more of a conversation? And then it got to a point where I was like, you know what? I don't want to just bring a problem to the table and be like, um, why are we killing ourselves more? Somebody needs to do something about it. And then so that's where I started really looking at trauma-informed care and how to apply that. And I actually started to apply it at work. I started to apply it in everybody I interacted with, specific questioning, the way that I talked to them. If I was going to Baker Act somebody, I made sure I had as much information to find out not what was wrong with them, but what happened to them. So when we got to um, the, the place where I was going to drop them off at for them to have a, a psychological evaluation, when I dropped them off, I knew who they were. I knew where they were from. I knew what their adverse childhood experiences were. And I was able to give all that up front to the intake nurse. So they had all this information up, for, up front that they could begin to use to hopefully be able to help this person, like genuinely help them to recognize, hey, you know, it's not that they're they're mentally ill. It's that they were sexually abused and they locked all that stuff away and they've never dealt with that. 
you know? Um, and that was just, that's one example, obviously, but there's many, many more. And it became, it came really empowering because I began to recognize what was threat, like physical threat, what was really physically threatening and what was just anger trying to be channeled and regenerated and, and to deal with frustrations of trauma and all these different things. And as I applied this, I just found this amazing tool and I was like, wow, if I can find a way to teach this, this would be absolutely incredible. Beautiful. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head too. We have, you know, what they call compassion fatigue a lot in fire and EMS, you know, the, the frequent flyers that you run on again and again and again. And, you know, people, another thing that people don't talk about a lot is a sleep deprivation. So you add all that trauma, you, you couple it with sleep deprivation. Now you've amplified the effects of whatever's going on from childhood at home with divorce, you know, sick children, whatever it is. And then you apply it to running on that person that we do. But the human side, like you said, what happened to that person? That's not an addict. That's a person who's found themselves deep in addiction. That's not a bum. That's a person who somehow their life has spiraled downwards where they're living under a bridge. So that compassion side is very, very important. And again, that's what I love about what you're doing now is, you know, you're not only addressing the, the mental health within us, but you're educating people on the mental health in the community that we serve as well. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it really is a simple question. What happened to you? And you'd be amazed at how many people are waiting, chomping at the bit to be asked the question so they can just have an opportunity to pour out. I mean, I have people that open up so fast, like they just because they want to tell their story, man. You get to that point where you get tired of carrying it and you want to unload it. You want to get rid of it, but you don't know how. And, and that's what I began to realize was that we had something really special. And I had no idea that all of this craziness was going to happen that's happened over the last year and a half to two years now with the, the COVID ep epidemic and the protests and the political climate and just all of the, the separation and violence and anti-police and defunding police and, and all, the, all the different aspects. I had no idea about any of that when I was putting this together. So again... Um, you know, God empowering, to say the least, to be able to have something that um, would be ready for this time when we needed it. No, absolutely. And we talked just briefly before we start recording. When I see the riots, I see the same thing as I see when, you know, when we go to, to a Skid Row like area in whatever city we work in, which is people hurting. Now, the you know, the problem is that those people hurting are killing each other, which is horrendous. But you know, normal people, healthy, uh, you know, a strong mental health does not invoke, you know, shooting people, doesn't invoke destroying property, it doesn't invoke any of that stuff. So even, you know, what you're talking about, I think applies to these hotbeds of, of hate that we're seeing. The problem is you've got hurt people and hurt people all in the same place. So then there's an inflammatory moment where they're all lashing out at each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, man, there's so much trauma and cycles of trauma. I mean, you know, from the, the vicarious trauma, the direct trauma, the indirect trauma that these people and us, you know, that we face day in and day out and, and how it just carries over. Um, it's, it's unbelievable how much trauma affects um, our decision-making process, um, our, um, it, it increases or decreases um, the way that we look at our needs and our wants. 
and and really about um, whether we go and, and find a place to hide or we, we, we fight because we don't know what else to do. Absolutely. Now, when you wrote the book, I meant to ask you just a second ago, was there a level of catharsis of finally getting all those pieces of the puzzle from your head and also, you know, actually getting to arrange them in a timeline that did you feel a sense of relief after writing? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was so incredible because the book doesn't just tell my story. It talks about the healing process and, and what I learned to become, it became the movement process. And it was so empowering when when God taught me this because I began to realize that you can change, that it does come down to you and the way that you think and the way that you operate. And what I realized is I poured my, my heart and my soul into that story and into that book and into that process. I began to realize how important what I was writing was was going to be. And more importantly, I recognized that it wasn't going to be for everybody, but it definitely was going to be for somebody. And, I, you know, I've been blessed, man. I've been able to impact a lot of people in a very positive way with my story. And that's that's a very healing thing um, for me and for the people that I've been able to impact. No, absolutely. I was talking to a fireman who's in the process of writing a book at the moment. I just finished my book uh, three weeks ago. It came out and, and we had the same discussion. I told him, I'm like, we need more people to do that, especially because I don't come from a overcoming immense trauma, going to a dark place. You know, I don't have that kind of story. I was very fortunate enough to to have a pretty solid childhood and some, you know, some great parents that were there the whole time. So mine comes from a very different angle. And I think that's the point, whether it's a book, whether it's a podcast, whether it's speaking, is the more people that are out there that are that have goodness at the core of what they're doing. They're not trying to profiteer off people. They're not, you know, they're not sending out false information. But as you mentioned, you know, your story is going to be very pertinent to so many people. His story might reach a different audience. But if none of us write the books, then no one's going to get help. So that vulnerability that you and he, you know, are showing with your with your stories and so many people have come on the show, that's the hook. Like you said, the statistics, the guy that tells you, oh, we have this percent divorce and this, that isn't helping anyone. It's just depressing. <laughs> that's it. It but, is. But, you know, when someone says, here's my story, I'm going to paint the picture so you actually feel like you're there and then I'm going to walk you through where I came out the other side and how I was stronger, that engages people and it makes them, it gives them hope that they can get from where they are now to one day also be in that beacon of light. Absolutely, man. And people need that, man. People need that more today than ever. And I feel like if more people had that today, we maybe wouldn't have so many of these protests that are going on right now because a lot of them, I think they're very just confused people out there that, you know, they're, they're trying to find their, their healing or their, their process one way or the other. And um, they're doing the best they can with what they've got. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the thing is, both sides are right. You know, I mean, law enforcement needs more support, more training. I mean, especially in things that, you know, areas like jujitsu and, and weapons training where there's budget cuts and they're not getting any of that and they only get to qualify on the range once a year, whatever it is, that's a room for improvement. But, you know, no one's also saying that, you know, these deaths that we're seeing, whether it's police officers murdered, where it's, you know, civilians being murdered, that's also wrong. So it's not black or white. It's in the middle. Yes and yes. Yes, we need to do better on this one side. Yes, we need to do better on the other side. So again, if we can look at, you know, the system 
and that's such a, you know, like a cliche word, but if we can reverse engineer where these issues start and then rebuild up, we can make the streets safer. And what you're talking about, addressing mental health on the streets and within our professions is only going to have a huge, you know, positive influence on this whole country. Yeah, uh, it's so needed, man. I mean, like right now, there there's a solution that needs to be had. I mean, this this problem about defund, like what happened, James, that we lost our humanization in our industry. And and even though firefighters have always been looked at as the good guys, right? They're dealing with a lot of these situations too because they're there at those protests. And they're playing a role, whether it's a fire truck blocking a roadway or and now they're becoming more interactive with law enforcement and what we're dealing with because they're getting shot at, too. You know, Um, you know, there's been many situations across the country where firefighters and EMS guys are getting shot at, you know, while because they're using them to get the police to come to draw the police to them. So, yeah, it's a it's a very crazy world that we live in right now. And there's definitely some solutions that need to be had, man. Absolutely. Well, you you mentioned trauma informed care. Um, if you wouldn't mind, can you actually describe that to me? That particular philosophy. I can, and and I actually did because it, it really trauma informed care really focuses on identifying the impact that trauma has on a person's life, how it affects them mentally, physically, and psychologically, and how that trauma not only affects them but how through them it affects other people as well. So again, identifying the fact that there we go to events, we have experiences, and there's effects from those things. Uh, recognizing the trauma that either we are facing or recognizing the trauma of somebody that we're coming across, realizing that it's trauma, responding to that trauma, and identifying you know resources and ways to help them, and most importantly, recognizing and having the training to avoid re-traumatizing ourselves and re-traumatizing other people along the way. So again, recognizing ACEs, um, adverse childhood experiences, and the effects that that has on us overall as a, as a population across the globe, how that impacts us. Recognizing how a large portion of the communities are dealing with those ACEs and have never really had a chance to have the, the right interactions and the right resources to be able to address those things so they could move forward with their life. And that's another way to decriminalize, Right. Helping people to identify the cycle of trauma that they're in and stop the cycle and help them to work through where they're at so they can move forward with their life, you know. But that takes a lot of community uh, relations. That takes a lot of and you see a lot of people talking about community organization and things like that, yet they're not really focused on uh, rebuilding, right, as much as like right now we're, we're instead of rebuilding things, we're, we're destroying things. You know, so we, we trauma informed care. The principles really focus on identifying trauma, recognizing it, realizing the impacts it has and avoiding re-traumatizing either yourself or other people as you're dealing with them. And there's a whole program that goes with that. Right. Well, let's talk about that. So tell me about going beyond the call. You know, give me an overview and then how people listening can can um, get you guys to their department. Absolutely. So going beyond the call, basically imagine, basically what I did was I went back 20 years to when I started my career and I said, if I could have had these tools then that I have now, 
How would it have made me a better police officer? How would it have made my community better? How would it have made my agency better? And how would I have been able to impact and save more lives? That's what I did. And I partnered with a friend of mine. Her name is Dee. Her real name is Deirdre von Kroskoff, but we call her Dee. And her and I got together. We uh, you know, put this program together that focuses on uh, mitigation, understanding, awareness, and strategies when it comes to mental health for us and, you know, for the communities that we interact with. So the idea behind it is to implement training that focuses on trauma-informed care principles to start to rehumanize the badge again, to prepare brand new police officers or firefighters or EMS or dispatchers or corrections, anybody that's in the public safety slash first responder industry, help them prepare at the beginning of their career for the different challenges and traumas and different things that they are going to face. Because let's face it, James, there's no way to avoid the events if you're doing this job, right? You can't be a firefighter and pick and choose the calls that you go to, right? When the call comes, the call comes, right? The radio goes out, they go, attention all units, uh, be advised, there's a fire, three-story building, this is the address, go. You don't get to sit there and go, um, I think I'm gonna sit this one out, boys. <laughs> no, you don't, man, what do you do? You jump in that fire truck and you go because you know that that's what you've got to do. But before you go to that fire, man, you've had all this training. You've been prepared. So you're as ready as you can be. So when that moment gets there that you have to fight that fire, you're ready for it. Wouldn't it be cool if we did the same thing with the mental health aspect when it comes to law enforcement and everything else that we do to understand the different types of trauma you know, how to interact with it, how to address it, how to deal with it within ourselves, within our personal relationships, within our external and internal relationships, you know, to recognize the different biases um, and, and to be able to, like you said, reverse engineer by starting at the very beginning before they ever go out and interact with anybody that has faced any form of trauma and help them to identify if they have had any form of trauma that they've had to deal with. So they can address that before they go out there and face the real world where they're going to face all kinds of crazy experiences and help them to understand the science. What's going to happen to your body over time? What's going to happen to your mind over time? What is, you know, you know, what does the brain do to address trauma? Right. What's the difference between post-traumatic stress injuries and post-traumatic stress disorders? Right. So we lay it all out at the beginning and then as they go into their field training, they get advanced training on these aspects as they're going to these calls. You have FTOs that are walking it back through and they're like, so what did you see on that call? What kind of trauma did you see? Did it, did it reflect on you? Did you, did it impact you in some way? Did you notice yourself getting triggered? Did you feel yourself triggering somebody else, right? Having a real genuine understanding of how that works. And then as they're moving through their career, we're having in-service training where we're implementing that tr this trauma-informed care philosophy into the training, into um, the, the different uh, scenarios that we do where they have to interact with people and recognize the type of trauma that they're dealing with and recognize and come to a, a resolution where they can help them to find resources and be able to offer those resources. Just like we do when we train when there's a guy with a gun in his waistband Instead of the physical threat, you're dealing with the mental threat and how to address the mental threat, right? And then, of course, at the end, at the end of their career, when they're in that retirement phase, having a phase for them, too, 
to help them to deal with and address anything that they weren't able to address up to this point, to help them to wipe that slate clean as much as you possibly can. So when they finish this job, they can move forward and move on to the next chapter of their life and actually enjoy it instead of being terrified by all the things that they've locked in that database for so long that come back to haunt them. Well, exactly. And, and you find that in law enforcement, you find that in, in fire as well. And I think what, what compounds it in fire is that tribal element we discussed earlier when you were in the army. Yeah, law enforcement, yeah, a lot of these, these agencies, they are riding alone, you know, which is, I, I think this, it's terrible. I think every agency should have two to a car personally. I think that would be immediately how we could improve a lot of areas. But of course, that needs funding. But, you know, in a, in a fire station, we're in a crew of four, eight, 12, 16, however many, um, you know, units are in that particular place. And then one day, that door just closes behind them for the last time and they walk away. And they're not a firefighter on paper. They're not a firefighter in statistics. They're not a firefighter in anything anymore. And that is such a jarring thing. And especially if they've identified and hadn't found other areas where they can transition to or other tribes that they're still a part of. Um, and, you know, now they get to sit at home, whether it's alone, whether it's a family, whatever, and just, you know, replay that Rolodex of memories that they accumulated the last two or three decades. And to have that, class as people transition back into the civilian world the same way as i don't know if they actually do in the military but they, they certainly should um you know we need that in our professions whether it's dispatch like you said whether it's you know forensics whatever it is but anywhere where you see things that people shouldn't see and you've and you even shift work where your body's been beaten down i couldn't agree more to have a kind of you know um I don't even know what the right word is, but but a transitionary phase where you have retiree training before you finally leave is absolutely a must-have. Absolutely. And one more thing I want to add, too, because I think this is important because I'm sure you're going to have some administrators and supervisors. Supervisors need to be trained to talk to their squads. So if somebody goes to a bad call, instead of sending them to the next call, actually pull them aside and say, hey, man, that was a pretty bad call. Are you okay? And ask them, you know, give them the courtesy because I can't tell you how many calls I've been on where I've seen death and destruction and craziness. And in an hour to two hours later, I'm going to a call where I'm dealing with two civilians that are fighting because somebody's car wasn't fixed right. And you're sitting there and you're going, what's wrong with this picture? I was just dealing with a dead infant in my arms that I tried to save their life. And now I'm dealing with this. This is, this is ridiculous. Right. So supervisors need to be trained to recognize when their um, their squads, their their employees are going to these bad calls. And then lieutenants need to be following up. Hey, um, I just wanted to make sure you uh, you followed up with Sean and, and, and checked on him, man. I know he had that call today with the dead baby. Is everything OK? Did you follow up with him? So there's accountability, James. From the top to the bottom, you know, we talk about about um, accountability when it comes to our actions and things like that. Yet this is the most ignored thing still today in our society, even though it's the number one thing that kills us, man. We got to change that. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you, you know, again, you mentioned within the community, you mentioned within the, with law enforcement. You, I hear a lot of the words... Um, I mean, excuse me, I hear the word community policing mentioned a lot and there's a wide gamut and some of the most successful programs I see, for example, New York uh, uh, Cops and Kids Boxing, Pat Russo's uh, gym in, in New York. I see 
the sporting element, the athletic element, the 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 focus, the the mentorship. But I'm sure before, especially after the training sessions, there's probably a lot of interaction, a lot of kids opening up, a lot of, you know, able to offload the trauma, start talking, finding commonalities with these officers that are helping running these these gyms. Um, but when you hear community policing, sometimes you just hear like, you know, coffee with a cop and you sit down with a policeman. Hey, you know, I'm a cop. Hey, I'm a kid. All right, bye. You know, so if you could, if you could infiltrate in a positive way the community with the philosophies that we've talked about today, what would community policing look like through your eyes? Community policing would implement the trauma-informed care practices because they would begin as they were interacting with these kids. Look, you and I both know that in order to gain the trust of anybody, it, it you have to have a relationship. You have to build that trust, right? Especially when these kids in these lower income neighborhoods are being trained to hate us. They're being trained to hate the police, that we're the enemy. So it's going to take time. And community policing is a phenomenal way to do it, to have um, you know, interaction where you're playing sports or BMX bikes or, you know, whatever the case may be to be able to build that trust. And then as you're interacting with them, you begin to recognize you're looking at their records, right? Let's say that there are kids that have been getting arrested and you ask them instead of saying, what's wrong with you? Why do you keep getting arrested? They're able to ask the right question and say, listen, man, I'm just really curious because the time I've spent with you, man, you seem so bright. What, what happened to you that got you arrested three weeks ago, right? And then they start to open up and they start to tell their story. And now you go, oh, okay. And you know what else? Now you can bring in the right resources, whether that might be group sessions with the kids where it's fun and it's interactive, where they can, they can you know, or it's one-on-one, right? And again, we can create those resources. We can partner with, with therapists and counselors and, and resources that are all dying to get involved, you know, to be a part of this. But it's really about collaboration. I think that's the key word is you need to have uh, collaboration in your community between the police and the communities in order to really reach the kids at the right level. Absolutely. And it just kind of echoes what I've heard from several people on the show, Mandar Apte in, in LA and, you know, many, many police officers that talk about de-escalation and, and, you know, community policing. And so I think that the mental health coupled with, you know, in an ideal world changing drug policy, we could have a huge impact with, you know, very, very little cost really just changing and, and reappropriating money to the preventative side rather than reactive side. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's about training ourselves so that we we so one of the things I talk about in my book is confidence. Right. And the different levels of confidence. And, and we need to get to a place where we go from being unconsciously incompetent to the point what we don't know. We just don't know. We're just stupid and ignorant about it to the point of we are unconsciously competent, meaning we don't have to think about it, James. It just automatically happens. We automatically recognize things begin to stand out. Things begin to go, oh, you know what? I, I recognize that. And I've and I've seen that before and I've dealt with that so many times. I know the right question to ask or I know the right approach to be able to gain trust and, and, and be able to get them to open up so I can help them to find the right solutions. But we really have to focus on humanizing our industry again, like from top to bottom, man, finding the humanization in what we do. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, I want to go to some transitioning questions, some 
transition to some closing questions. Oh my God, I think I'm tired. Um, uh, but I want to make sure we talk about your book first. So I know you have two books. So, so tell me about um, the movement process first and then and the other one and then where people can find those. Sure. So again, uh, let go of the movement process is my personal story and it's the process that God walked me through that I share because I feel like it'll help any human being on the planet who genuinely wants to let go of their past and move forward in their life. So um, that one, you just go to themovementprocess.com and that'll take you to the Amazon link and you can get the book there. Um, the second book that we wrote, that one that um, my co-author D and I wrote is uh, Going Beyond the Call, Mental Health uh, mental health fitness for public safety professionals. And that one focuses on trauma informed care police. And a lot of the things that we talked about, we lay it out in a uh, structural format, but we also weave in storytelling, sharing experiences, personal things that I did as I used and implemented this stuff on the street and how, um, how it will benefit them through my own experiences, basically. And um, that book is on um, Amazon as well. And you just go to gbtcbook.com and that'll take you to the Amazon link for that one as well. And um, the cool thing about this book is that um, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman actually wrote the foreword for this book. And um, I don't know if you know Dave Grossman or not, but a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, will know that name. Um, he's written a lot of books. He's one of the top trainers in the world. And uh for him to write the foreword and uh, to recognize that this is a really important topic that needs to be addressed, it really meant the world to us for him to write the foreword for it. So we're excited to offer a tool, if you will, that focuses on a trauma-informed care, emotional adversity management system for every person that reads this book. Beautiful. Yeah, no, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman's been on the show twice now. Oh, he's awesome, man. Absolutely awesome. Absolutely. All right. Well, then the first of the closing questions, is there a, oh, I'm going to sneeze. Hold on. <laughs> All right. Try it again. The first of the closing questions, is there a book that someone else has written that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated. Man, there is a book out there that's called Visioneering and I cannot remember who wrote it, but I actually have it. It's on my, it's on my bookshelf. But um, it, it's called Visioneering. And what I love about it is that it walks you through creating your vision and the preparation and the patience that you need to take as you're um, creating that vision, what that looks like. And that was a that was a really powerful book for me. Beautiful. Andy Stanley. Yes, that's it. I Googled it. So, <laughs> OK. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Beautiful. All right. Then same question. Is there a movie and or a documentary that you love? Oh man, there's a lot of there's a lot of great movies out there. You know, I think one of the ones that I really really love is I Can Only Imagine. Um, that was a, an incredible story. Brilliant. And any documentaries that spring to mind? Oh man, uh, you know, uh, but there's a, there's a few. Um, I think the, the 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 one that really stands out is um, is uh, Tonir Kane. Her documentary and um, and that focuses on where there's breath, there's hope. Beautiful. All right. Then next question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Mm, man, there's a lot of people, man. Du have you had Doug Mondo on yet? You did. You just recently had Doug Mondo on, didn't you? I did. Yeah. I interviewed him what, just over a week ago and it was um, 
not this latest episode but the one before so yeah doug monda is absolutely incredible um what about karen karen solomon no haven't had her yeah karen solomon i think would be a great one man she is really pushing hard to raise awareness about law enforcement suicide and the lack of accountability of agencies to stand up and recognize and honor um, police officers that take their own lives because for so long we've looked at that as a negative thing when a, when a police officer kills themselves and she's really come out and, and made a statement and, and her, the whole thing with blue help, you know, creating statistics and helping to raise recognition and bringing in phenomenal trainers and partnerships and, and all the things that she's done, man, if you could get her, that would be a really good one. Beautiful. Well, speaking of that, that's something that I've, you know, considered should be the case with the suicides and, and with overdoses too. That's the other side of suicide no one talks about. I mean, you know, there's a lot of men and women we've lost because they've OD'd or, or alcohol related. And the reality is, you know, if, if they weren't addicts when they came into our profession, then that's basically a line of duty death as well, because you compound what we do, what we see, and then, you know, the shifts and, yeah, you know, sadly, that's a contributing factor to to those deaths as well. Absolutely. You know, another one is car crashes, like the like single car crashes where they run into trees. Right? There's no no rhyme or reason. They just run off the road and run into a tree or whatever the case may be. A lot of those, you know, they're looking back at now and saying that those were you know suicides that were obviously recognized as accidents. So again, another way that they're. Uh, that they're trying to bring more recognition to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, didn't we have a, a police officer recently ram a car going, was it the wrong way? Um, and I believe it killed him. Oh, man. I think so, yeah. And I, but again, you know, was it was a strange tactic. So was that actually like, a, all right, I'm going to stop this and end this at the same time? I mean, who knows? Yeah. All right. Well, then last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? Baseball. I play baseball with my son. That is one of the the most favorite things. And uh, coaching baseball, um, um, I love to coach. Um, I also love to go to the beach. I love to spend time with my family. I love to take my daughter on dates um, and just spend time with her. And uh, so we spend time, you know, individually with our kids and then also spending time together as a family. But after everything I went through in my past, man, there's no better feeling than to have a – a beautiful family that God's blessed me with and be able to cherish every moment I can with them. Absolutely. Well, that's a beautiful full circle as well, because you mentioned that being the only sport you played when you were six. Yeah, I live, I live vicariously through my son, man. He is, he's, he's a gifted um, talent to say the least, man. He's still growing and learning and I'm, I'm truly living vicariously through him and he's just allowing me to enjoy the journey with him. And it, it's, it's a cool experience to say the least. Fantastic. All right. Well, then very last question. If people want to reach out to you or find out more about you online, where are the best places online to do that? Sure. I would say LinkedIn right now is probably one of the best places to to reach out to me. Um, you can also reach out to me on Facebook. I also have a website. It's uh, gbtc911.com. So um, G is in golf, B is in boy, T is in tango, and then C is in Charlie. Um, 911.com and there you can learn more about our program you can see our training outline you can see uh, information about the book 
and uh, get a better feel for both D and I and uh, and what we do. And then, of course, you can email me at info at goingbeyondthecall.com. And, uh, I'm, I'm, of course, you can just Google me, too, and you find me that way as well. Brilliant. And you have a website that's seanwyman.com. Is that right? I do. Yeah. You know, I don't bring that up much because I, I really haven't paid a lot of attention to it. But, yeah, I do. I, Sean.Wyman. Uh, I'm sorry. Not Sean. It's seanwyman.com. That's it. seanwyman.com. Brilliant. All right. Well, Sean, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, I mention this a lot when people come on and, and you know, are so transparent and courageous and telling you know, well, there's a traumatic story, no matter how, how you look at it. But those stories are the, the ones that the hook in the mouth, you know, they really are the ones that make us pay attention and really tap into the true human emotion. And then, as I mentioned before, give people hope when they see these people come through the other side, more resilient than they were before. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, and being so courageous and telling your story. Well, hey, James, thank you for the opportunity to tell my story, to hopefully impact somebody in a positive way, to help somebody to to recognize that they need to let go of their past and move forward. And congratulations, man, on your book. I can't wait to read it, man. I'm super excited to uh, get a copy and uh, and read your story. And hopefully I'll be reverse engineering and interviewing you in the future, man. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, we'll do a book exchange. I'll be reading yours very soon, too. So I'm looking forward to that. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much, James. I appreciate the opportunity.